So we're in Ephesians chapter 6. We are in this series called When God's People Pray. And I want to I begin by just asking it this way. Um, do, do you realize that you're in a battle? Do, do you realize that every single day you, you're facing a battle? See, the reality is what Paul is trying to do in Ephesians chapter 6 is awaken us to the fact that there's a, a war raging all around us every day. And when I talk about a battle and I'm talking about a war, I'm not talking about IU versus Purdue. I'm not talking about Republicans versus Democrats. I'm not talking about the culture war. I'm not even talking about the war in Ukraine. What the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6 is something eternally more significant than even those things. And so the truth is this, that, that every single day, my thoughts, my struggles, my fears, my doubts, my dreams... Um, really manifest themselves in the midst of a fierce battle. And from the time that I wake up in the morning until the time I, my head hits the pillow at night, I, I'm engaged in combat. And the war is hard fought. And it's not easily won. And it's the same for you. It's no different for you. And so every single day, all throughout the day, there are things happening around us that are not visible to the natural eye but nonetheless are all too real. And I'm not talking about ghosts and goblins and you know, things that go bump in the night. What I'm talking about is the reality of what's going on around us, and that is spiritual warfare. And so Paul's entire point of Ephesians chapter 6 is this war is real. And what he's trying to do is awaken us to that fact. He's trying to awaken us that there's a battle that needs to be engaged in, and he's calling us to put on the armor of God and to take up the weapons that God has provided for us in the fight. Now, this is not a battle. It's not a war against flesh and blood. And I think sometimes we get tricked into thinking that people are our enemies and, you know, we get sideways in our relationships. But I'll, I'll tell you, church, that the, the war is against Satan and his demons and uh, the spiritual forces of darkness. And there's just no chance of you and I winning on our own. There's no chance of you and I winning without the resources that God has provided, which he details in Ephesians chapter 6. So I, so I get it. I, I, I totally understand. I can kind of see it in some of your eyes now. This sounds kind of Lord of the Rings-ish, right? This sounds like I'm, I'm speaking of some kind of fairy tale story, you know, where there's this pervasive evil gathering, you know, gathering in the distance, and it's a threat to everything, you know, good and true. But here's my question. Where do we get those stories where do those stories come from? When you think about like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Saving Private Ryan or even the Marvel Comics movies, all these movies just draw us in year after year. Where do those stories come from? They come from a reality that we know that is, that is happening. They're, they touch something deep within us because we know there's a conflict raging all around us. And I think when this life is finished, and we are worshiping at the throne of King Jesus, and we are reminiscing and telling stories, I, I think we're going to be surprised at just how many fairy tales were in fact realities. And how many things that we thought were really true and real were really in fact just fairy tales. See, church, if you don't get anything else I say, you need to get this. That, 
the enemy tries to blind you to this battle. He, he doesn't want you to see it. So he's going to do everything he can to try to get you to make yourself just feel real comfortable, kind of get your lemonade, your lounge chair, and just kind of put everything on cruise control, thinking that, you know, you're on a peacetime footing. And so the enemy works very hard at that, to try to blind us to the reality of the world that is all around us and the fight that is all against us. And so he doesn't want you walking with God. He doesn't want you realizing the love of God in your life. He, he wants you pinned down with guilt and shame. So what he's going to do is just try to distract you. He's going to try to deceive you. He's, he's going to try to destroy you is what he's going to try to do. And so what Paul does is gives us an honest look at the nature of life and the reality of the battle that we're faced. So we're going we're gonna to read Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 18 because I just want to give you it. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see what he says. For yourself and just write in the scripture and uh, so I'm going to ask if you're willing and able would you please stand just as we read the word of God together today so the apostle Paul writes this he says finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the full armor of God that you may be may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the, of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it as boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. They last forever. You may be seated. So the nature of life is, is war. It, it's battle. So why do we have to fight? I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think the scripture explains to us that Satan was the highest ranking angel and he led one third of the angels uh, to rebel against God. The word Satan itself means, in Hebrew, literally means adversary. And uh, Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies, a murderer. He's a thief. He comes to kill and steal and destroy. He is he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's, he is, he's an accuser. So all of those things kind of make up the character of the enemy that, that we're fighting against. And so what has happened is he has declared war on God. And so since he has no real power against God, what he does is what he, what he tries to do is hurt God by going after the children of God. And uh, if you wanted to hurt me, you, you could probably figure out a way to do that. that that'd be fine. Uh, but if you really wanted to hurt me, you would go after my kids. 
And then all of a sudden for me and my enemy, it would be game on. You know what I mean? Like you can mess with me all day long. Just don't mess with my kids. And, um, and there's something about you're not going to touch my kids. And, and I think that's exactly his strategy. He is trying to deceive us and destroy us and lead us completely away from God. So he, is, he has waged war on God. And he's in reality an already defeated foe, which is a whole nother subject. But, but that's part of why we have to fight. I think secondly, why we have to fight is because the fight that we engage in glorifies God. You know, I have the greatest job in the world. I'm, I'm a pastor. I get to stand up here and communicate to you every single week that God loves you. I mean, I just, I have the greatest job. There's no job better than that. And, and so, and so the, the, the challenge with that is that as I do that week in and week out, I, I realize that for many of you, it, that truth kind of sticks here, but it never makes it down into here. Like it becomes head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. And so it doesn't really start changing your life until it starts working in here and you start walking in that reality. And, and so the way that we come to know God's love is through engaging in battle, relying on God's love, where we see that he's for us. We see that he's with us. We see that he's faithful to us. And you see that over and over again. And I think what's gonna make heaven heaven is we're gonna be so aware and so secure in the love of God, not but because we're in heaven, but because he's proven himself faithful while we're on earth, that's why. And so the battle that we engage in glorifies God. He's already secured the victory, but he's called us to rely on him to engage in the battle so that the victory can become ours as well. And so I wanna talk about that today. And what I wanna do in this passage, there is so much in this passage. This passage is an amazing uh, passage of scripture. I mean, we could literally spend months just walking through uh, each of what he is saying in this passage. But what I'd like to do just for today is kind of focus for you on verses 17 and 18. Just give you kind of a, a snippet of what he is saying today, because I think this is really the most important piece of what he says. And let me just show it to you again, verses 17 and 18. He says, and, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, and with all prayer and supplication, supplication is just an older word. It just means make requests. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so what I want to do just from 17 and 18, I want to give you the basics of spiritual warfare today. I want to I try to answer three questions for you. What is the sword of the spirit? What is that? What, you know, he calls us to take up the sword of the spirit. What, what's he talking about? And then secondly, how do you even do that? Like, what does that look like? very practically for us on a, in a, you know, on a daily basis. And then third, I want to talk about the nature of prayer in spiritual warfare. So let's look at the first one. What is the role of the sword of the spirit? Look at verse 17. He says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, what that is, is a call to arms. He's calling you to grab your weapon, grab your sword, let's go, is what he's saying. And he wants us to see the urgency of the fight. He's trying to help us to see the fight is right now. Like there's no time to just kind of sit around and sip lemonade and wish for something different. You just can't do that, right? He's trying to help us to see the urgency of the battle that we're in. If I called you up at three o'clock in the morning and I said, you need to grab your gun, there would be urgency there, right? You would hear the urgency in my voice because I would, I'm, a, I'm communicating to you that, that danger is imminent, 
and you need to get ready. And that's what he's doing in this. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to get us out of our spiritual doldrums and see kind of what's going on. So he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Secondly, he's trying to help us to see the proximity of the, of the fight that we're in. See, this is not a fight over there. It's not a fight over yonder, you know what I mean? Like the fight is here, it's nearby. It's up close and it's personal. Earlier in the passage, he talked about, we, you know, we wrestled not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers. Now, have you ever seen a wrestling match? And I'm not talking about WWF, okay? That's wrestling. I'm talking about wrestling. Um, have you ever seen that? I mean, in a wrestling match, those guys are, you can't get any closer. I mean, one wrestler feels the other wrestler's breath on his, on his neck. That's how close uh, that they are. That's what he's talking about here. So each of us have a fight, and it's personal. It is up close and in our grill, for sure. And so soldiers have to be prepared for hand-to-hand combat. They have to be. Even in, t- in this day and age of technology and warfare with all of that stuff, we, we have to be ready for hand-to-hand combat. That's exactly what he's talking about here. He doesn't say take up your bow and arrow. He doesn't say grab your javelin because those are distance weapons. He says grab your sword. So what this means, church, is there's urgency and proximity. That means your family is in the battle. That means your kids are in the battle. That means your grandkids are in the battle. You're in the battle. Our church is in the battle every single day. And so the proximity just communicates to us that our choices matter, our lives matter, our relationships matter, our friendships matter, people matter, your prayers matter. That's what he's trying to to convey to us. Third, I think he's trying to help us to see that the sword is a unique weapon. It is both defensive and an offensive weapon. And so it's, it's really the only weapon in this class of weapons that he a uh, class of equipment that he gives us that is offensive and defensive at the same time. I mean, you got the breastplate of righteousness that protects you. You have the shield of faith that protects you. You've got shoes. You've got the belt of truth. You got all of that that protects you. But th- those are not offensive weapons. But the sword is. You use the sword to defend yourself from the onslaught of the enemy. But you also use the sword to go on offense, to push the enemy back, to gain ground against the enemy. And I think for a lot of Christians, we have no idea we're supposed to be on offense. We have no idea we're supposed to take ground. We're not thinking about that. We're just kind of thinking about cowering underneath our armor and just hiding out, you know, waiting for Jesus to come back or something. But it's interesting. We're supposed to go on offense. We're supposed to gain ground. Jesus has already won the victory. So now we just got to take the ground. So you see this in a couple of different places in scripture. One instance you see this where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And Jesus responds by saying, you know, upon your confession, I'm going to build my church. Upon the rock of your confession, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Now, for some reason, we hear that and we think, you know, the gates of hell are kind of encroaching on us. That's not what gates do. We're encroaching on the gates. We're on offense. We're moving to take ground. And what Jesus is saying is the church is going to gain ground from the enemy and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against us. 
as we move in and route him. That's what Jesus is saying. And so we got to go on offense. You're never going to experience triumph. You're never going to experience victory in your Christian life until you grab your sword and start moving and start routing the enemy. And so sadly, most Christians don't even realize this. Could you imagine if the Colts, every time they got the ball, they punted it right back to the other team? You know, like our defense gets a stop, then they punt to us. And then on first down, we're like, let's just send in the punter. We'll just punt it right back to them. Could you believe that? You guys would, would drive you crazy. Actually, it'd probably be a good strategy for them. Their offensive line, <laughs> not very good. So maybe the defense can put some points on the board or something. But you would be so frustrated. Like, you're like, what kind of game is this? They're not even sending the offense out there. I think for a lot of us, that's how we live our Christian life, right? Let me show it to you in Matthew 11. This is a very interesting verse. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What in the world is he talking about there? What does he mean by that? Dear Christian, we're the violence ones. That's what he's saying. We need to be moving and taking ground, taking ground from the enemy. Let me share with you what Pastor John Piper says about this verse. He says, there's a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life. But violence against whom or what? Well, not other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in us that would be violent to other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in our own selves that would make peace with our own sin and settle with a peacetime mentality. It's a violence against all lust in ourselves and enslaving desires for food or alcohol or pornography or money or the praise of men and the approval of others or power or fame. It's violence against the impulses of our own soul toward racism and sluggish indifference to injustice and poverty and abortion. Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with the world the way it is kind of religion. Christianity is war. It's war on our own sinful impulses. You don't have to raise your hand to this, but have you made peace with your own sin? Have you signed a peace treaty with it? Well, I just have to live with it. This is the way it's always got to be. Just going to be shackled and burdened with bitterness and guilt and shame the rest of my life. Just have to give up and live a defeated Christian life. You know, what I know is pornography is so rampant in our society today. Um, it's just killing us. I mean, so many people struggle with it, especially students today uh, because of our cell phones and just the prevalence of it. And uh, what it does is it just steals your awareness of God's love and closeness to you. That's what it does. It just creates this chasm between us and God. And, and then what it does is it just binds our will so that we don't do what we should be doing and then we do what we shouldn't be doing. And the enemy just pins us down with it. And, um, and, and you know, maybe, maybe you take a defensive position with it. Maybe, you know, you, you, you look at it and, and the enemy just whispers in your ear, I, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were saved. And uh, you grab that helmet of salvation. You're like, oh, no, I, I know Jesus died for my sins. I, I, know, I know I'm a Christian. And, and so what you do is, is you're clinging to the defenses of the gospel um, after you've sinned and you should 
You should. But have you ever thought about killing the sin? You ever thought about taking the word of God and moving on offense against it? The great theologian John Owen said it like this, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And so what does that look like? I, I think going on offense just simply means that, that, we, that we take the word of God and, and, and we fill our minds with it. We fill our hearts with it. And then we fill it some more and some more until all of a sudden our heart is so filled with the truth and the beauty and the love of God, there's no room for anything else in there. We just kind of, there's just not a place for, for, for jealousy or anger or, you know, discontentment or, you know, lust to have in our hearts. Why? Because our hearts are filled with the love of God. Look at Psalm 119. I love what David says. He says this, how can, how can a young man keep his way pure by, by guarding it according to your word? So he's talking about the, how the word of God is a defensive uh, a defensive weapon that we can use. So we, so we guard our lives through the word of God. But then he says this, with my whole heart, I seek you. He turns it into a prayer. Let me not wander from your commandments. And then he goes and shows us the offensive part or offensive part of, of the sword of the spirit. I've, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So he's using it defensively and offensively right there. And what's happening is his heart is gaining ground in the kingdom. And the kingdom is gaining ground in his heart. So that's what the sword of the spirit is. Well, secondly, well, how, how, do we, how do we even begin to fight with the sword? Like, wh what does this look like on a daily basis? Well, let me show, you, show it to you how Jesus engaged in the battle. So if he engaged in battle, you know we're going to have to do it as well every day of our lives. Let me just show you Matthew chapter 4. I'll read it to you. He's, uh, Matthew writes this. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now it's interesting to me that the enemy attacks him right at the heart of his identity. Jesus knows who he is. He's the son of God. But Satan comes in and questions who he is. If you are the son of God. It's like he's just throwing some doubt at that. And it's just interesting that the main question in our culture today is over the issue of our identity, isn't it? That's where the enemy is attacking today. He's going after our identity. Who are we? And so that's exactly where he's attacking Jesus. And notice how Jesus responds, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, that's not the whole story. There's two more temptations that Jesus had to uh, endure and counter from the, from the enemy. But what I want you to see is this. I want you to see that Jesus understands our temptation. He's been through it. He's been tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. So that's the first thing. But I want you to really notice how Jesus fights, how he counters the attack of the enemy. What he does is he takes up the sword. He takes up the word of God. He, he, uh, he takes up scripture and he, he responds to the temptation with these three powerful words, it is written. That's how he responds. It is written. And he does it three times and each time he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. So what do we learn from this? I, I think first you see that Jesus understood the power of the word of God. 
That's what he pulls out. That's the weapon that he uses. He is, he is quoting and pulling out. He understands that there's power in Scripture, the power in the Word of God. This is not some toy lightsaber here he's messing with, right? This is, this is when the tempter came and waged war against Jesus, he counters him with the Word of God. Second, I want you to notice the manner in which he uses God's Word. He quotes it verbatim, line for line. That's what he does. He says, it is written... And then he gives you Deuteronomy 8.3, word for word, just like it was written. And so he's not paraphrasing it. He's not, you know, giving the general principle of it. He is, he, you know, he is, he's quoting it word for word. Now, why in the world would, would he quote Deuteronomy 8.3? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The reason why is because the word of God is living and active. That this book, church, is alive. It's breathed in by, it's breathed out by God's spirit. Let me show it to you in, a, in Hebrews 4.12, where the writer of Hebrews says this, for the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So even the metaphor of a sword is not strong enough to convey the edge and the sharpness and the power and the effectiveness of it. Notice, notice the effect of the word of God, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. That's pretty deep. I mean, you get all the way down to the difference between soul and spirit. I mean, that's, that's something an MRI cannot, cannot pick up on. And then he goes on, of joints and marrow, discerning our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. The spirit of God knows every motive, every thought that we think. And so the word of God is alive. It's, it's breathed out by God. It's active. There's a power in it. You know, I was thinking about Charles Spurgeon. I, I love reading about Charles Spurgeon. He was a preacher in the 1800s in England. And uh, when he died, God used him in such an incredible way. Uh, his funeral lasted three days. I, I'm not making it. 100,000 people came and paid their respects to the Spurgeon family when, when God called Charles Spurgeon home. And uh, there's a story about Charles Spurgeon that he was, he was going to be preaching in London and uh, he was preaching in this large auditorium. And uh, this was back before mega churches. This was so uh, abnormal uh, for church world back then. But man, he would draw thousands of people. So he went into this auditorium and it was empty and he just wanted to test the acoustics out because there's no micro, you know, no sound system, no microphone that he would use. And so, so he just kind of stood up to an empty auditorium and he just started reciting scripture that he would be preaching on later later in the evening and all he did was just quote scripture I mean he didn't he didn't preach he didn't teach he didn't say anything. he just quoted scripture and there was a gentleman in the room adjacent to that auditorium who could hear everything that he said and right then and there after hearing all of the scriptures that that Spurgeon quoted he realized his need for a savior and he committed his life to Christ right then and there now how do you explain that church all he did was just recite the word of God. And what it shows us is that the word of God has a mind of its own. It has a power of its own. That it's breathed out, you know, uh, from the very heart of God. And I, I, was just, I just became convicted of this because, you know, I know a lot of Bible verses, right? Like I, I know the concepts and the principles in, in Bible. Word. I don't always know the specific passage word for word. And then I'm counseling somebody, and so then I'm, 
I'm kind of generalizing it a little bit and I'm not quoting it directly or I'm, I'm, you know, maybe you're correcting your kids or teaching your kids and you're just kind of giving, you know, you're kind of moralizing or generalizing. And what Spurgeon said in a sermon was, he said, you know, when we do that, it's like, it's like the sword is with us, but the sheath is still on it. There's no edge. Because you see, the word of God is like a, a double-edged sword. And uh, when we use it, it has an edge. It, it cuts and, um, and moves us. It moves us closer and closer to our need for a Savior. And you know, another lesson that I think we see here is, I think it's interesting in Matthew 4 that Jesus has to do this three times with the enemy. Now you would think that, you know, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. All he has to do is one, just say the word one time and, you know, the enemy is running. Why does he do it three times? I don't think he did it for himself as much as he did it for us. I think what he's trying to communicate to us is we're going to need to be consistently in battle using the word of God over and over and over again. See, the power of the word of God is not just against the enemy and the demonic realm, but the power of the word of God is powerful in its effect on us. Because what, is it, what does it call us to do? It calls us to trust it calls us to rest in him. And so sometimes we need that twice, three times, four times for that to have an effect on us. And I think that's what Jesus is really trying to communicate with us. So, so maybe you're new to scripture. Maybe you've never read scripture regularly. How would you start doing that? How, like where would you even begin to do that? Let, let me... Let me just get real practical here for a moment or two and, and just share with you the SOAP method of Bible study or Bible reading, whatever you want to call it. This is what I would do, church. And I, I challenge you to do this. I would just begin with prayer. I would begin with, Lord, will you, will you speak to me through your word? Your word is living and active. Would you speak? Secondly, I would, I would grab a pen in a notebook and I would grab my Bible and I would read a chapter or I would read a half a chapter or even a passage of scripture like we just read. And, and I, would, I would work through the SOAP method. SOAP stands for scripture, observation, application, and prayer. So what I would do is just work through those four steps. So letter S, scripture. So as I'm reading, as I'm, as I'm reading Matthew 4, Jesus' temptation, I would write down anything in that scripture that kind of jumps out, phrases, words that kind of jumped out at me. I would write down the word temptation. Uh, I would write down the words, it is written, because we, we see that. And, and then I would just make a note of that in my notebook. Then I would move to observation. And the observation is, what is it, what is it that, that really stands out to you? What's speaking to you? Like what, what force of the scripture do you feel in your heart? Write it down. And what you notice in Matthew 4 is Jesus is, is under attack. You, you see that he's being tempted and, and then he, he, he responds with scripture back. It is written three times. I would write that down. That would be my observation. And then I would move to application and I would begin to think, okay, so Jesus is being tempted. What are the ways that I'm tempted daily? How does the enemy come after me? How does he tempt me? How does he discourage me? How does he try to get me down, you know? 
and I would write that down. And then I would, I would think about, okay, what's, how do I need to respond to the, to the attacks of the enemy? I would write that down. And then lastly, I would take some time to pray. And I would ask God to help me to apply that every single day of my life. And church, when you start doing this, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes a day, your soul is going to come alive. You're going to start gaining traction. You're going to start winning you're going to start gaining ground in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is going to start gaining ground in you. Why? Because the word of God starts to penetrate and guard. And you are now moving on offense. And you are going to get it into the end zone. I promise you. But I just challenge you to take up your, your sword and use it. That's what God has called you to do. Now, last one. And I'll, I'll close with this. Notice the emphasis on prayer. Notice what he says. He says, he says this in verse 18, and praying at all times in the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that you go into your closet and, you know, you close the door and you just pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and just ignore your family and quit your job and all that. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about there is maintain a spirit, an attitude of prayer throughout the day. Just maintain that awareness that the presence of God is with you every day and you can talk to him underneath your breath. You can talk to him as you're doing your job, as you're staying home with the kids and whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. So pray in the spirit at all times with all prayer and supplication. So you're making requests to that end. You're going to keep alert. You're going to keep your eyes open because, you know, there's a battle going, around, going on and you're going to do it with perseverance. You're not going to give up making supplication for all the saints. You're going to be praying for others as you pray for yourself. Now, a couple of things here. I, I just think it's interesting that this is how, basically how Paul ends this section on spiritual warfare, like with a plea for us to be men and women and students who pray. I think that's significant. He's calling us to pray. I think the other thing is he's ending the entire letter to the Ephesians with a call to pray. I think that's significant. Now, what's he trying to get us to see? He wants us to see, church, that prayer is the battle. It's not preparation for the battle. It is the battle. And so you use the sword and you use prayer to move forward and move into victory. That's what he wants us to see. A lot of times I think as Christians, we look at the cross and we think when Jesus died on the cross, that was the battlefield for Jesus. That's where the battle took place to secure our redemption. I don't think so. I think by the time Jesus got to the cross, the battle had already been won. I think the battle didn't take place on Calvary. I think the battle took place at Gethsemane. That's what I think. You remember the night before that Jesus was crucified, he was in the garden, he's with some of the disciples and he begged them. He's like, he's like guys, will you, will you just stay up and watch with me? Will you pray, pray with me and for me? Will you, will you just hang out with me? It was the greatest struggle of Jesus' life as he faced the reality of the cross. It was under, he was under so much duress. He was under so much strain and struggle. Church, Luke, a physician in his gospel, tells us he sweated drops of blood. That's real. That's where he was. And his prayer was, Father, take this from me. Take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. And it's not that he was worried about the pain of getting getting crucified on the cross, that, he was, that was not his concern at all. He didn't want to be separated from the Father. 
as the sins of the world were going to be placed on his back. He didn't want to be separated from the perfect love of the Father, which was about to happen. Just like you don't want to be separated from your loved ones through death, he didn't want to be separated either. So his prayer was, take this from me. But then we see Jesus triumphing in prayer. He ends it with, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Now, what does Jesus show us in this? He's showing us that prayer is the battle. It's not getting ready. It's not warming up. It's not preparation. It is the battle. That's where it's won. And so, and so he went to the cross. And why did he go to the cross? Because he loves you. And he loves me. He embraced the will of God so that we could embrace as children of God. He became our substitute. And so he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death we should have died. And he did it in our place and he did it because he loved us. And so that's our motive for prayer. That's, our, that's why we've won in prayer because it's, it's in that moment of prayer that we realize his love and uh, his affection for us. Now, I'll just tell you again, and I've said this um, previously, but the, the enemy just doesn't want you praying. He doesn't want you walking in the love of the Father. He wants you pinned down. So he's going to do everything he can to distract you, to deceive you, to destroy you, to leave you, you know, to lead, to lead you far away from this. And have you ever asked yourself as you think about because we all struggle with prayer, let's just face it. So why is it that when we pray, we feel the most resistance? Have you ever thought about that? Like you start to pray and you just, you just feel it's such, such a struggle. Well, it's interesting because uh, Tim Keller's a pastor and uh, he pastored a long time in New York City. And he was talking about how it's so much easier to preach for 30 minutes than it is to pray for 30 minutes. And he said, you know, I've, he had preached some bad sermons and, you know, he's gotten lost while he was preaching, you know, he's kind of lost where he was in, his, in the middle of his sermon and stuff. Um, but he's never forgotten while he was preaching that he was preaching. Like that never happens, he said. But he said, what's funny is I'll be praying and I'll completely forget that I'm there to be praying. Can you guys relate to that? You know what I'm saying? Like you get on your knees and you're praying to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then all of a sudden you're cleaning your garage the very next minute. You know what I mean? Am I the only one that does that? You know, so. Um, why is that? I think because the enemy doesn't want us praying. So tempting to reach down and check our phone, check social media. You're having a conversation with the one who loves you more than anybody. And uh, you get so distracted John Newton's a hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace. He said, he said, praying is so hard that sometimes the buzzing of a fly in the room is an overmatch for my strength. Just the buzzing of a fly. You see, in the battle, we feel so much resistance because the enemy really, really doesn't want us engaged. He doesn't want us engaged in the love of God. The psalmist said it like this, in your presence there's fullness of joy. Fullness of joy 
when you pray, when you're alone with your heavenly father and he has the opportunity to just put his arms of love around you to tell you that it's gonna be okay, to hear your request, to calm your heart, to meet your need, whatever it is. That's when the, the presence of God comes into our life. We experience joy, we experience freedom, we see miracles. The enemy doesn't want that. So he's going to throw all hell at you to keep you from doing it. But all I can tell you today, church, is when God's people pray, victory is realized. Victory is secured. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we speak of mysteries that we, we don't even fully understand because we can't see into the realm all around us where there's a cosmic war going on. But thank you that through your death and resurrection, you've already secured the victory. And now you've just kind of called us in to kind of clean everything up to realize your love for us, to realize your faithfulness to us, to realize your presence with us. And so in that process, we just know that your love becomes more and more real to us. And so we ask today that the Holy Spirit would just be manifested among us, that you would renew us, God, in your love. Forgive us where we've drifted away Forgive us where we've sought to be comfortable. Forgive us where we've turned against you, where we've just kind of signed a peace treaty with sin. Help us to realize, God, more and more who we are in you and what you secured for us. And so thank you that you're with us. You're closer to us than the air we, we breathe. You're always with us. We love you, God.